2: Hello, welcome to the long form podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, hey guys. Hey, hey, hey there. We're hey. T- we're taping an episode again because we're uh, we're not allowed to talk about people who've snubbed the show in the introductions <laughs> of the show. That's actually a special premium feature, uh, behind the scenes look at people who've said no to coming on this podcast. There, are, we've got hours of
1: tape. It's really a delight.
2: Great cast. Let's talk about uh, someone who did not snub us. Yeah. Came on the show, though he did uh, make me come to his office. This week's guest- I give that a, I give that a half a snub. <laughs> it's a really nice office. I went to Ezra Klein's office at Vox in Washington, D.C. He's got a big like panoramic view of the Washington Monument, and uh, it was great. He, in addition to being the co-founder and editor of Vox, uh, has a podcast, which I enjoy. I think he's a good interviewer. And uh, we talked a little bit about that and starting Vox and how he got his start at the post. And uh, he was great. He was really uh, an interesting guy. As always, we are sponsored by MailChimp. If you have a business that needs to stay in touch with the people who use your business, I suggest using MailChimp to do so with an email newsletter. They make the best one. Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Max with Ezra Klein. How do you think about your time you're now like a bo- you're a boss yeah you're the boss yeah i've made terrible mistakes <laughs> <laughs> you're the boss now how do you think about your time like doing the podcast do you do the podcast every week yeah two of them two podcasts a yeah. week
1: That's but like- i do that because it i needed to start doing some kind of creative product that i could control Because I really do try to take running Vox seriously, and that means I do not get to spend my days reporting and writing. It isn't that I do no writing, but I really don't do the amount of reporting and research I used to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Podcasting, first I really love it because I've always really loved interviews, and it's just a medium that uh, is really conducive to that. But it is something that I can put on the calendar and time box. Right. And because I can do that and because I can plan around it in advance, I can do it. Mm -hmm. But… What I like about podcasting is that you can be wrong.
2: You don't think you can be wrong in
1: the other uh, various mediums of your life? I used to be
2: able to. No longer? The great
1: thing about blogging when I was starting out and nobody gave a shit what I thought about anything was I could be wrong all the time. And I was. was, My career is built on being wrong as a college student. (laughs) And that was really great because you could work out ideas. You know, you could try things out. I mean, there was something you could do that I could do uh, as a blogger where there would be something that interested me about the world. I would write up just like a theory on it, a riff. And then some people come in the comments and be like, that's not correct. There's all this research that you haven't read. I'd be like, oh, great. I learned something today. And now, you know, I'm a professional journalist. So you do that and, you know, you're ill-serving the audience. You can't just like go out and riff and try on new ideas. And on the one hand, I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's, you know, appropriate for what I'm doing. But it is fun to be able to just try things on. And podcasting, for reasons I don't quite understand, retains that sense of the individual mm-hmm. where people will accept that you were speculating, that you were trying something on for size, that you were you know, just ha- going back and forth. On, on The Weeds, which is the policy podcast I do with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff, I'm constantly coming up with an idea that they then just, like, completely talk me out of in the (laughs) next (laughs) rebuttal and that's fine and nobody emails and like well fuck you 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 were wrong about that off-the-cuff reaction to the thing they said uh but in text you know I, i can't i can't do that anymore and i miss it
2: yeah do you aside from like having your mitts on something creative that also doesn't steal all your time do you like doing it
1: yeah i love it do you think you're getting better at it uh no i think i'm like holding exactly steady but i've only done i think in terms of the interview show uh so i have two i have the weeds which is a policy discussion with iglesias and sarah cliff and then i have uh the ezra klein show which i always feel sheepish saying um but i really do enjoy doing it i don't know if i'm getting better yet i'm trying out a bunch of new things uh so i just did an interview and i don't know if it'll come out before, after. This comes out with Jesse Eisenberg. That's the first time I've ever interviewed an actor. Mm. And the interview went totally fucking great. Great. But at this point, it really feels to me that whether an interview goes well is not something that I have a lot of control over. Like, I don't feel in command of that progression. Mm -hmm. There have definitely been interviews that I walked into exactly as prepared, probably more prepared, and I just could not get them into that space. What do you think makes a good interview? What makes a good interview? Emotional openness and intellectual openness and then some kind of connection based on people enjoying talking to each other. Mm. So basically, I think that you can you can have an interview where the two people like each other, but one or the other is either being emotionally or intellectually closed. So we could have a super fun connection, <laughs> but I could stay completely on talking points. Yeah. And it won't be a good podcast. Conversely, I think you can have a great intellectual or emotional openness, but you never connect. So the whole conversation is kind of stilted and formal, Mm -hmm. and that won't work. So you end up needing to be in this weird space where you're able to develop some kind of very fast near friendship um, and combine that with people like actually just being willing to talk. And because my podcast is just like a rambling, unstructured (laughs) mess, um, where the idea is that you'll get to sort of live inside somebody's head for a little while, if you're not willing to go off in weird directions, it's just going to be a very uncomfortable experience for everybody. And one weird thing about podcasting, which I don't like compared to writing, is that I feel pretty calm killing a piece. But when you go and take an hour or 90 minutes or two hours of somebody's time I don't feel like you can just say, well, that didn't out that good, so I'm not releasing it. So uh, I wish sometimes that there was some way to signal to the audience, I don't really think you should listen to this one. This one's a skip. <laughs> like there needs to be some kind of secret code. <laughs> like if the, um, in the iTunes description, if the first letter of every sentence spells out, don't listen. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so sort
2: of like podcast Ouija board. Right. Let's talk about being a boss. Sure.
1: Do you like it? I like parts of it. What do you like so i really like building an organization and i really 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 like and have sort of always really liked trying to figure out how we can do the kinds of journalism that i'm really passionate about better um not saying we always succeed but it's really a lot of fun to get to test out theories of well if we did this then could we do more great pieces? Or could we create something that the audience understands better? Um, so all that stuff where you're strategizing and trying to think about how to cover things, like the actual work of being an editor, of being a story assigner, of, being, um, of having this ability to take ideas and really put them into play, I like that a lot. The other side of it, right, is that you have a lot of meetings. You know, you have personnel stuff, which is not always the most fun. Like, you're, a lot of people's happiness or even their paychecks are responsible on you not screwing things up. Yeah. And that stuff is difficult. Uh, you know, and you try to do your best at it. But that's not, like, you don't wake up in the morning excited about managing people. Not as an end in and of itself. Yeah. The most exciting thing in my job is when folks I manage just do awesome things. Like, the further it gets from me, the happier I am about it. You know, our video team just creates marvels all the time. Shout-out to and Joe Posner. Shout-out to Joe Posner and Joss Fong. And I'm always so incredibly proud of that work, in large part because I have so little to do with it or to <laughs> contribute towards it. And it, that's stuff where you feel like, oh, my God, I'm, we have built this tremendous organization that has these fundamental values and has these capabilities and has this orientation – And it's created a context for these great things to happen. That kind of managing people is fantastic.
2: I want to talk to you about how you got here. And at least from afar, one of the stories of how you got here is pretty relentless sort of ambition and self-starting and going hard yourself at projects, at ideas, at uh, work. And I wonder whether it's been challenging at all to manage people
1: who maybe aren't wired exactly that way? It's funny because, yeah, I totally know that narrative um, about myself. And feel free to say that narrative is off too. Well, I'm not going to say it's off. Um, I'm going to say that the part of it that I never quite know how to think about emotionally in terms of how does it help me understand what I'm doing or how to manage people or whatever is that none of it ever felt that way. I have had so much the opposite of a five-year plan. I started blogging when like nobody ever imagined that would be a career path for anybody. And I started it as a lark. And everybody around me thought I'd become a journalist before I did. So like I just never intended to go into journalism, Like almost until the day I did it. <laughs> I thought I'd go to law school or whatever. And then when I was a journalist, um, when I started out particularly as a blogger, I never had, like, the slightest intention of going into editing, much less into management. And it's always felt to me, the the way my career has gone, that the next thing has presented itself really obviously, that there's been some limit I hit, and that in order to then do the kind of work that I felt would be the work that I should be doing, I had to build something or go somewhere or or do something different. And in each case, I mean, it felt like the change was driven by that I went to the Washington Post in 2009 and I was there as a blogger and a sort of policy blogger and 2011 I had the great fortune to start Wonkblog there but it wasn't that I came in in 2009 with the intention of ever running a section or having anybody working under me like it never occurred to me that would ever happen in my career It wasn't actually something I really wanted but I had been covering Obamacare, and I was covering the financial bill. And as I moved from one to the other, I knew there were all these Obamacare stories that I cared about, and I knew my audience cared about, but I couldn't cover them, right? Because I was now doing the debt ceiling crisis. I was now doing Dodd-Frank. And so it was just obvious if I was going to provide the audience with the service that I thought I was supposed to be providing them with, then I needed more people. Right, because I just I knew what the stories were. I just literally couldn't get to them, and so that was how Wonkblog happened. It was like I saw the need in my own work and like in my own relationship with the readership, and it was just you know the obvious thing you would do is hire people on to do it. And with Vox, it was actually you know in my experience of it, pretty similar. It has just always, always, always bugged me that we were so bad at providing baseline context that, and I think it's because of the things I covered. When you're doing incremental coverage of something like Obamacare, the emails you get are not what happened today in Obamacare. It's like, how do subsidies work? Like, what the fuck is this thing? <laughs> and I had nowhere to point people. Right. Like, to Wikipedia? Like, where did the information about what it was live? Mm-hmm. And so the idea for Vox emerged out of how do I solve that problem? How do I not have everything we know about obamacare or dodd frank or the debt ceiling or whatever fractured across ten thousand stories so i'm not saying there's not ambition but it isn't goal directed in that way it's sort of a i get really into covering things and then get really frustrated because i can't cover them the way i think they should be covered and then i try to build the thing that will solve the problem
2: so what you're saying is it wasn't strategic it wasn't uh, that where I want to be is running a section at the Post, where I want to be is running my own, you know, news operation. It was born out of seeing some hole in the market, some hole in your own reporting, something you wanted to do that you couldn't do without doing that
1: other thing. Yeah, it's born out of annoyance, usually.
2: It's <laughs> born out of annoyance. <laughs> so even taking that, I mean, that even that instinct, if it's not necessarily like entrepreneurial in the way that mm-hmm. I was describing it before, it is like... Affecting change in your own life, right? It is like not accepting the parameters of where you are and trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to change the dynamic around what you're doing, to expand what you're doing, to like push and see how far you can push and create space to do more, right? So that gets back to the original question, I guess. Like, not everyone is wired that way. I think the thing I'm trying to ask is there's a transition from being the person who's doing the work to trying to build an organization that does that work. And has it been hard, has it been a challenge to not everyone is going to be mm-hmm. wired that way. Not everyone's going to see it. I'm not surprised that your answer was like, I love it when people do stuff that I'm not connected to at all. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of like how you're wired.
1: That's super interesting. And so my question is like, what do you do? Is it hard for you to work with people who are not wired that way? No, which isn't to say there isn't anybody it's hard for me to work with. It's only to say that, I don't think, by any means, like that is the only way to do good work. So I really, really, really like working with writers and editors. And I'm not, for the most part, asking them or even looking for them to try to start new sections or organizations. I mean, sometimes. But, um, but I have no problem with someone who, what they want to do is their job. I do find it hard when people aren't hungry. Not when they're not hungry to change things, when they're not hungry on their own beat, when they're not hungry in their own space. I have always had a tendency to throw myself at the story and to try to expand the boundaries of what I could cover, you know, to try to think of ways that, you know, if it's a political story, I can make it a policy story. If it's a completely non-political story, non-policy story, I can use a tools, maybe a policy analysis to take it on, you know, I would try to find ways to cover things like the Boston bombing, even though I was working on a policy blog. And that's something that I prize in folks and try to push. I don't want people to say, well, nothing happened on my beat today. I don't have to do anything. Um, I want people to have that desire to be on the page. Is that something you think is innate
2: or is that something you can learn how to do?
1: I often think it has to do with people finding the right space for them. Something that is very key to my psychology about this stuff is that until I was 19, 20, something like that, I was a complete slacker, like did very badly in high school, was like a really like my whole like reputation both externally but also internally with myself was like a not hard worker who kept failing at things. And so I have a very very clear sense that in another context I really do poorly. And so I only became hungry when I was in a space and in a situation where what I was doing matched what I was good at, what I could focus on. It just somehow eventually I found something where the different parts of me clicked. But I have a really deep understanding that you actually have to find that for that experience to be smooth this is yeah. gonna be a very awkward segue sure. but speaking of hunger
2: i read this thing about you that like you uh you were a fat kid yeah and like when you're 17 or something mm-hmm. and you decided like you just didn't want to be that person anymore
1: i mean i think that is overstating uh how that worked out but uh when i was 16 uh, i think it was there were a whole host of reasons. Um, including being rejected by a girl I liked (laughs) and all kinds of shit. Um, But also having been made fun of for being fat for whatever it was at that point, 10 years. And yeah, at that point I lost a lot of weight. Like ate the same thing every day and ran three miles every
2: day. That feels to me connected to what we're talking about on some level. Like most 16-year-olds
1: don't have the
2: drive to do that i think
1: or maybe it's not drive i don't know what what was it well but i think if you looked around certainly the way i understood my role in the world or personality at that point yeah every 16 year old i knew seemed to have more drive and discipline than i did Mm -hmm. um i was the one fucking up in my classes i was shit at sports (laughs) um couldn't seem to pay attention to things so i agree like in that moment i showed a lot of discipline um, and it came out of, you know, what, as a high schooler you experience <laughs> right. a, the, sort of an emotional trauma, the most important thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. But if you had pulled 50 people who knew me, every one of them would have given the same answer, which is it. I had way less than the normal capacity for discipline, way less than the normal capacity for hard work, way less ability to focus on things that maybe I didn't exactly want to focus on. Uh, why I lost a lot of weight at that point, I, I don't exactly know. <laughs> it, it worked out well, but it it was, it was at that time unprecedented and would remain <laughs> a somewhat isolated incident of rising to the occasion for a number of years. But then, there, so
2: what I'm hearing you say is it's not necessarily that the people that you've encountered who you don't have that hunger simply don't have that hunger, right. it's that they haven't
1: Met the thing that's gonna sort of activate it, right? Or at least that tends to be my assumption, mm-hmm. right? I'm not. I think that if you've fought to get into journalism and fought to end up at a place like Vox, there is probably some union between you and work and subject that will lead you to really want to be in the game. And if we haven't found that, we have to keep trying. But the people who are here uh, are are pretty fucking hard workers, mm-hmm. and so when there's some kind of blockage. It's usually because we are not finding the approach to writing and the kinds of topics and maybe the manager and so on that will make that easy. And I I know a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people who, in one context in journalism, are very kind of paralyzed um, and are having a lot of trouble getting things out onto the page. And then you put them in another context and things work out really well. I've watched a lot of people go from having a lot of trouble in a sort of formal bureaucratic structure to having some kind of blog and all of a sudden it unleashes Mm -hmm. or i've seen people go from do the opposite too i've seen people suddenly go from having you know real management and an editor standing over them over to something where they have a lot of freedom and they totally freak out right so i do think it's like really important to find the way you work best and for you it sounds like
2: you found that pretty quickly
1: Yeah, once I found blogging, I was in college. I was in my freshman year at UC Santa Cruz. And immediately I was just writing 10 things a day. And again, like, it was a surprise to me too. And I was waking up at 7 a.m. to make sure I had content on the site really early. I mean, like, I really got into it very quickly. Did you have an audience quickly? No. (laughs) 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 Like, for a long – like, so I got in and I got into it because I liked reading the blog of this guy, Matt Iglesias. And I figured if this college kid could do it, like, why couldn't I try? And I emailed him, and he linked to me. He was very kind. And I was so excited. And, like, for the longest time, I had 30 people a day. I had my site meter, I think mm-hmm. it was called. Yeah. And it said, like, it would vary between 30 and 40. And right. if I got, like, a link from that, it would bring in 120 people or something. <laughs> right. And I was, like, fucking thrilled. We're going to the bar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, not, not then, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't have any sizable audience for years, still after that um i was on pentagon for a while like that got into like the low i think we were in the low thousands mm-hmm. i then went to my own site that stayed in the low thousands I but mean, when you
2: were when you were in like yeah. the 30s 40s 100 day 120
1: day was awesome you were still waking up at seven and being yeah, like got got to make it fresh, fresh. some feed them all yeah also i it turns out i just really like the work of writing i mean reading and researching and thinking about the world and writing about it is just really pleasurable to me but also i mean what was nice about that was the stakes were so low I was a college kid, before the age of social media, by the way. So it isn't even clear if I wrote something really terrible, how anybody would even find out about it? Like, <laughs> right. they'd email it to each other? Like, what would they do? <laughs> um, and so I was just doing because I liked it. And at that point, there was no conveyor from blogging to journalism. And also, I had no intention of being a journalist. So it wasn't like – not only was it low because nobody was reading – But it was also low because it wasn't meant to lead to anything.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, it was literally in my head a hobby that was no different from reading a book or going out on a run or playing video games or whatever it might be. Like it occupied the same space in my sort of internal priority list. It's just the one that I really loved. When did it start to feel like the stakes were increasing? Is that just audience or did something change with you? So it began to feel like the stakes were increasing when people who i knew of were reading so the first time this happened was uh when i was blogging in 2003 i think it's 2003 i was i had read richard ben kramer's fucking amazing uh book about the 1988 election what it takes one of the greats and if you read that book one of the views you will come away with is gary hart is really great uh and Gary Hart was coincidentally thinking of getting into the 2004 race of running against George W. Bush. And so I, you know, in this moment when like some people were writing about how Dean was great and some people were really into Gephardt or, you know, I was extremely unusually into <laughs> Gary Hart. <laughs> and so one of my 35 readers a day was Joe Trippy, the manager of the Dean campaign, who was a former Gary Hart staffer and was just somewhat, I think, baffled and amused that some kid somewhere was a big Gary Hart fan. Uh and so when Gary Hart dropped out of the race, I uh and I write this sort of note like fuck Gary Hart's dropped out of the race <laughs> on oh, my blog. And so Trippy emails me, and he's like, hey, do you want to come work on the Dean campaign Uh, or intern on the Dean campaign? So I go and do that. I was supposed to be there for a summer, and I left after six weeks because it turns out I I really hate working on campaigns. Why? I don't like supporting candidates because then, like, they do things that you disagree with, and you just have to, like, shut up about it. (laughs) So that didn't work for me. Um, And that's around when I started getting a little bit more serious. It was clear I was not any good at campaign work, but people were starting to read my writing. When did you start to say, like, uh, this is the thing? I think it was a Washington Monthly internship as much as it was anything. I mean, that was a great experience. And I was there at a really wonderful moment. So the Washington Monthly structure at that time was it was edited, I think it still is, by Paul Glastris, who's great. But it had these sort of, uh, would always have these two rotating senior editors. And I think they were called senior editors, although they were always like and at that time they seemed very senior to me, <laughs> but I think they're just 20-somethings. Right. At that time it was Nick Confessori and Ben Wallace Wells. And Nick is at the New York Times and he's an amazing political reporter. Ben is at the New Yorker now. And both of them are just like two of the most talented journalists I've ever known. And I had so much to learn from it. Um and I knew that like very, very quickly and very clearly. Like, that just fit, you know, in the mm-hmm. way something's just fit. Like, that just fit. And I was like, oh, like, I would love to one day be, you know, a senior editor at the Washington Monthly. Like, it was the first time I'd been, like, near a job. I was like, I could totally see myself being that. Like, the only question was, could I, like, ever, you know, get to something like that? So how'd you do it? Um, I just kept blogging a lot. <laughs> uh, but but the real, way, the, the real way I did it is that the American Prospect, which... Uh, had a fellowship. Uh, I think it was a two-year fellowship. It was. It was a great position. I don't know if they still do it, but it paid like nothing. <laughs> um, but you know, you would go, and I mean, it was like an apprenticeship, right? I mean, it was like grad school, but you got paid a little bit a little as bit, opposed yeah. to paying a lot. I think and
2: almost none of those things exist anymore.
1: None of the fellowships. I mean, we have fellowships here. That's great. People should yeah, apply. People for should the apply box. for our writing yeah. fellowships. <laughs> I mean, it's modeled very much off of that program. But the, you know, I applied for the fellowship. I applied actually in my junior year. At that point, like, I was blogging a lot. And school, like, I'd never fit in at school, like, ever. I'd moved to UCLA because I thought maybe I didn't like UC Santa Cruz that much. It turned out I just didn't really like college. <laughs> and I really had hated high school. So it seemed like maybe... Didn't, could... like, didn't like the people? Didn't like... Oh, uh... well, the people were great. Um, and I still have, you know, some really good friends from that period. Uh, I just, I do think I have a genuine problem listening to people lecture. Like, even now, as a journalist, I will not call into a teleconference call because I cannot absorb the information. Like, I just, there's something about that that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so much of school is just sitting and listening to someone lecture. I learn really well from reading. I learn really well from talking to people. There's a lot of ways I can absorb information, and that one just, it, like, it genuinely doesn't work for me. So I applied. It was actually my junior year, and it was really lucky that I did because they ran out of money the next year and canceled the fellowship for a year. So if I had waited until I was a senior, as I should have, I wouldn't have gotten it. But I got the fellowship and so I like had some extra credits. So then I took this like big summer load and, you know, graduated college early and came out to DC. By the end
2: of your time there, when like these editors from the Post started calling and like taking you out to lunch, uh
1: at that point did you have a more clear handle on where you wanted to be? The Washington Post and Time magazine, sort of like both at once became interested in me, which blew my fucking mind (laughs) at that time. It's hard to sort of explain this, but that world of small policy magazines, which is shrunken now, was very consuming. And in my head, you know, maybe one day I'd like edit one of those magazines, right? Like I kind of thought of myself as a writer in that world. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe one day after I edited one of those magazines, I could one day go to somewhere like the Washington Post like the leap from like being at the American Prospect to being at the Washington Post was way too big to even think about. Uh (laughs) And so um, that's like, I think, another good example where one reason that doesn't feel strategic to me is that I didn't go out and find it. Like that was literally like they reached out and I was stunned and super excited. I wasn't looking for a job and did not expect that if I had gone looking for a job at the Washington Post, I would have found one.
2: Was it different when you left the post to start this
1: yeah very much um at that point i had an idea for vox and i built out a plan i had partners in that like that was very much i had a plan and i was trying to follow it
2: how long were you working on the plan
1: uh for vox yeah i had a lot of these ideas in my head and a lot of them had come up like in isolated ways like in product requests and and different things Mm -hmm. There was actually a blog post somebody sent me later that i wrote in 2009 at the post it was almost a perfect blueprint for vox and i'd completely forgotten about <laughs> it like and i wouldn't remember those ideas until like two and a half years later or right. three three and a half years later but from when things clicked and i was like oh like i want to build something that can do this to like when i left it was probably like six months
2: help me understand how you started to have those ideas i understand there's like pieces here and pieces there but when did it start to become something that you were like okay there's like a more cohesive idea here and
1: what was that idea so it was i mean this is probably and it's 2013 sometime uh i remember very clearly a meeting with marcus brockley who was in the editor i think it was maybe a business section meeting and i pitched you know we should create like a wiki but like one that we would do where when we're Looking at a story that we cover continuously, we have some kind of deep explainer that is always attached to the art. Like I remember pitching this and he mm-hmm. was like, yeah, it's a good idea, you know, and, but these things are hard to build. They're really, really, really hard to staff. Um, and I never thought anything more of it either. <laughs> it's not like I was pushing it or something. The process from which it went to, I have some ideas to like, hey, like we should come up with a proposal. I don't like, this will sound like a copy out, but I don't exactly remember like what mm-hmm. the turning point was there. But You know, at some point, I think there was some process that was begun about what is the future of Wonkblog going to look like. I think it was as I was thinking about that, that was like, oh, it's not just more Wonkblog. It was, I want to build product. Like, I have some ideas for technologically how this could work differently. And if we could do that, then we could actually create something really different from anything that exists today. So it kind of began to spiral out from there. Like you had the you're like, well, what would it take to really do that? And the more we thought about organization, the, the more it was like, okay, it's not an evolution. It's a new thing. Was that spiral exciting or like terrifying? Exciting. Well, terrifying was when I actually tried to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking about things is great. Yeah, super fun. I can't, I can't recommend it highly enough. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, I'm going to put Ezra on hold for a second and tell you a little bit about the sponsors who are making today's show possible. First up is Casper, and uh, as you may have heard on this show, I live with a very small person uh, who is my son, and he wakes up very early in the morning, which has made sleep very, very important to me. It is also very, very important to the people at Casper. They have engineered a incredible mattress at a shockingly fair price it combines this springy latex and then the supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015 a mattress one of the best inventions of 2015 it's a fantastic mattress but most importantly it's also a good deal you can try it for a hundred nights for free it's free shipping free returns if you don't like it send it back they'll give you your money back and it's not even that much money. That's the other part. Uh, Twin is just five hundred bucks, nine fifty for a king. That's way under what you're paying at the mattress store. So go check them out. Go to Casper.com/longform. If you put in the offer code longform at checkout, you'll get fifty bucks off. Fifty bucks off an already great deal. Thank you, Casper. Thank you also to Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way, the simplest way. The only way to build a website in 2016. They've got these beautiful templates. They work on any device. Everything about Squarespace just kind of works. And it even works if you don't know any code. Everything's just drag and drop. You go to squarespace.com. You start building your website. You're just moving things around. Everything looks all pretty and nice. And uh, you're like, I've got it. I've got my website for that store or portfolio or whatever you've been meaning to put on the internet. And you've not done because you thought it was hard. It is easy with Squarespace. When you decide to uh, sign up for a year which you will do because the product is fantastic. Put in the offer code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off and a free custom domain. Squarespace.com slash LONGFORM. Squarespace. Set your website apart. What was it like? I mean, I remember just watching that process from afar, like when you left the post and then there there was so much like attention
1: yeah it was fucking weird to what you were gonna do what was it like Like really frustrating and really unpleasant like really unpleasant so i one had just not expected there would be like who fucking cared i mean it seemed to me maybe like a big deal to us and even to the post Mm -hmm. but not to the media (laughs) like the people originally attached to the project were three people like who cares people move all the time but, yeah, there was a lot of, like, reporting on it. One thing that was very unnerving was how much of the reporting was wrong. I think people have this experience a lot where they're at the center of something that's getting reported on. And just, like, every story that came out, I remember this so clearly. the New York Times called me and they said, like, we have heard that you asked the Post for, I think the number was $25 million. I was like, that's ridiculous. At that point, I don't believe I'd actually even asked the post for a, a sum of money, uh, but I could be wrong on that. And they're like, really? I was like, yeah, like that number is like absurd. Like what the fuck would you spend $25 million on? Um, I don't think at this point in the organization we've spent 25. I'm sure we <laughs> haven't actually. And like, okay. okay. Uh, so then the piece came out and it was eight figures. And then people just took that and then just kept saying $10 million. Right. But it's just wrong. And, and th- so that was frustrating and weird. But the thing that was really hard was that because of the um, – I think because of the Politico experience that had already happened, and I also just think because of some cultural stuff in journalism, it was impossible to convince anybody that this wasn't some kind of searing critique of the Post. I actually really loved and love the Washington Post like an, in a no bullshit way. And I just couldn't get people to stop writing this sort of, this in this politico narrative as some kind of either the post was idiots for letting this go away or, you know, it, and... Or, it or you a, couldn't do something in a slow It old created machine. a lot of like conflict as opposed to the way the process, I think, felt more from the inside, which is I had an idea. I brought it to them. What that idea needed did not fit with where they were which I thought was completely the correct decision. Early on, when I was starting to think about this, the organizational structure under Don Graham was like, you had the post, but you also had slate. You had foreign policy. You had the root. There was actually a precedent for the idea that you would have a institution that was connected to the mothership, but a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought we would do. Then Bezos bought the post and those connections were severed. So now you just had the post and he was going to make a, a series of investments in the post correctly. What were those conversations with him like? I didn't have any conversations with him. Really? Yeah. No, not, not a one? Uh, not about this. No. I mean, I talked to him once when I was part of a roundtable of reporters when he came in, but never about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were conversations with people at the post. And again, I, I think that was the right call. Like if I had been running the Washington Post and one of my reporters came to me and said, I have this plan to build this organization, but it would be separate from the Post. I mean, you could have some Post branding, whatever, but it would be run separately. And at the same time, I just had I was just bought by a billionaire who probably had a limited period of time in which he would fund massive investment. I would not want to fucking divert that investment Mm -hmm. into some other thing. So, you know, I think they basically like... To, like fix along. up the house. Yeah, you fix Not, up the house. Yeah. Correct. Again, like, and look like... It's working out. It's working out. Like the, that was the correct move. And, you know, and so those conversations like never really went to a money stage. Mm-hmm. But they also weren't angry. Mm-hmm. And they weren't like, oh, you haven't let me do X. Like they let me do a tremendous amount. And so the hard part about that process emotionally was that... The reporting kept injecting conflict. Like it was actually creating conflict in the process. that like wasn't there and didn't need to be there. And that was really hard because, you know, I had a lot of um, like a lot of friends there and a lot of gratitude for the freedom and the support people had given me there. So that that was a weird experience in that way. Um, And then we just started with a lot of both. It made it easier to succeed because people were paying attention. So when we did things that were good, it was great. But I had, in my head, always imagined that we would just, like, start some small thing over here and we'd have time to, like, build up and make our mistakes and whatever. And we started with a lot of attention on us, right? Like, if we weren't changing the game from day one, what the fuck? And that was, you know, again, it might have been good in disciplining us and, like, forcing us to up our game faster. But that was a lot of pressure. When you become, like, the center
2: of a story like that and people are getting stuff wrong, does it make you think differently
1: about this work? Yeah. How so? To be fair, though, (laughs) I did not come to that with the view that the press is unerring. And, you know, I'm sort of focusing a little bit, like I was focusing our conversation a bit on like a small like point of fact Mm -hmm. that in theory, if I had somehow wanted to correct everyone simultaneously, maybe could have been corrected. But I was just like really like I really like did not (laughs) talk about that process Um, because I thought that was like, you know, the way to do it. And I think, by the way, the key people in the process didn't talk about the process. I think that what happened is there are a lot of rumors. But uh, it was not shocking to me. Uh, certainly as a blogger, I had a critique of the press. And I think sure. that things are often conveyed in terms that are narrowly accurate and then conceptually inaccurate. Yeah, I I mean, like that didn't shock me. But it was – it's definitely unnerving and it makes you wonder about your own work. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I was asking. I mean, like, a, you know, I have never been in
2: anywhere close like the – Limelight that you were in that moment, but or spotlight, I should say, but um, I have this experience sometimes, like just when like the Sunday Styles
1: comes out, and they write about like a bar, I know, uh uh-huh. you know, <laughs> and it's just like, well, this is just wrong, well, you definitely have that experience of living in d c and then the New York Times occasionally <laughs> writes about you <laughs> parachutes in, and writes about it, and there's this
2: effect when you see something like that that you know really well and you see how sort of morphed and manipulated it has been to fit into that container
1: that's it it throws into relief the whole rest of the package yeah it was very frustrating to me in important ways it got the story wrong but if you were for some reason a reader who actually was interested in this story it probably didn't get the story wrong in ways that mattered tremendously to you right like it did get correct that, like, I was trying to start a new organization and mm-hmm. ultimately it wasn't going to be at the Washington Post. So I think that one thing that if, if I were to like, maybe take the more generous view for the press, it's that the job of informing interested but not invested onlookers is actually different than the job of reporting for stakeholders. Now, yes. to some degree, you probably should be trying to do both but the fact that like it wasn't serving it was frustrating to me doesn't actually mean that you know again for people who wanted to follow this like th- they were learning something and it was broadly correct it was just sort of its emotional valence had been turned upside down and some of the numbers were wrong and like the yeah you know,
2: the only doing. the only pushback on that idea is that the number of people who are casual watchers of media news is pretty low Sure. Like most of those people are Although, but to be fair,
1: level. my sense of it is that it is it's everybody in the media, and they actually are casual. You do know what I mean? Like they actually, I think a lot of media news really is consumed as gossip. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. in, so, in that case, it might actually have been better. <laughs> like I think if what you were trying to do was consume that process as gossip, like the way they reported it was way better. It was perfect. <laughs>
2: All right, so when you get in that five-month period, you've left the post, and you, Matt, and Melissa are sitting around trying to figure out what you're going to do. You start talking to all these different places, uh, all these different umbrellas that you can do it under. How much of what you were thinking about was sort of business and entrepreneurial, and how much of it was the news side of what you were going to do and the way that you were going to try and dispense the, information? Those were very
1: connected. So, one, a lot of this happened simultaneously. A lot of that five-month period is while I'm still at the post. Um, in terms of planning, our theory of the case was that we had a pretty strong editorial vision and we actually were pretty confident in our ability to hire editorially, what we were not confident in, we had ideas about what we would need on the product and business sides, but we were not confident in our ability to build that. Like I did not think that I had some kind of special talent or really any of us did, and I think Melissa would agree to hire CTOs. Right. She would have been a hell of a lot better than I was, but way worse than Google is. And on business, none of us fucking knew how to hire a great director of ad sales. And so in terms of our strategizing, we did a lot of conceptual work early on on the editorial plan. And after that, we were really trying to test partners in terms of could they support us on the product and business sides? Because mm-hmm. that's where we really felt we'd be weak. All
2: of a sudden, you go from like a salaried employee at the Washington Post, which you had come to from being a very low salaried employee at the American Prospect, and all of a sudden now you're talking about equity and upside and potential numbers that are really big. And I I wonder how much that
1: was factoring into the way you were thinking because it's hard for it not to. We definitely thought about that stuff. I would say that stuff came very late in the process and it wasn't the stuff we were thinking about early. So we spent a lot of time talking with partners and 95% of the time spent in those conversations was practical. Mm -hmm. Like, how would we do this? Who would the CTO be? Like all those kinds of issues. And it was only really at the end with Vox that we got into a serious discussion about numbers in terms of compensation. I mean, it's not that stuff didn't matter to us. Uh, It did. Um, But as a general point, my belief from the beginning of this, and and it's generally been my belief in my career, if we were at the place where we can make this succeed, then it would be lucrative. Mm -hmm. But if we went somewhere lucrative that did not have the right conditions to make it succeed, it would long run be actually worse. So... I mean, we had offers where right now I could be making many multiples of what I'm making right now, but those offers were from places that I don't think had the would have created the conditions for this to take off.
2: That's a good answer to that question. I guess, and maybe what I was thinking was, was there a point in there where you were like, holy shit, we could go and make a bunch more money than I ever thought I was going to be able to make doing this?
1: Yeah, although that actually point for me didn't come in this process. I had a period where I thought about really going into TV. Yeah. And TV has a very different pay scale than print. <laughs> well, that yeah, was another, I guess uh, not print, but text. Another uh, media news gossip yeah. situation. And that would have been a really big step change yeah. in income. And I didn't end up doing that. Um, so Do you have any with, regrets about that? No. Um, so in terms of this discussion these were not numbers that were, like, blowing my mind. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> people are not, like, I, I mean, there there could have been some, some good numbers here, but, like, people were not offering to pay the editor of, like, a digital, like, t- primarily text media startup in mm. 2004. Like, it just, like, that wasn't, it wasn't the same as talking to networks about, well, what if I went TV full-time?
2: How would you describe the bet
1: that Vox as a whole is making? They are making, we are making a bet that we're in a land grab period where there will be a certain group of massive publishers with competencies and business models that were really derived from digital. And this group will end up catching a tremendous amount of the brand advertising money that moves online. That's Does that bet. make sense? Completely. Yeah. That's it's a lot of like kind of weird, buzzy words, but no, I think but, they're the correct
2: ones. Well, I mean, to, uh, to put it in slightly more like layman's terms, the bet is uh, a lot of the current huge media companies are going to fall off and some new huge media companies are going to come up in their yeah. place and Vox wants to be one
1: of those companies. Yeah, that uh, and and Jim is a really good way, Jim Bank of the CEO is a really good way of putting this. And he he kind of, the way he explains it is that when the web arises uh, as a sort of mainstream product or mainstream technology, you have sort of like what he thinks of as like Media web 1.0, which is just sort of some people start putting content online in really crude ways. And then you have um, MediaWeb 2.0, which is you get really low quality but high volume publishers, right? They figure out that the cost of publishing is super low. So they create big content farms, right? You're mm-hmm. about.coms, so like that's what you're thinking about there. And he thinks then, like, you know, as people figure out the technology, as the legacy players get a bit smarter, you end up in a space where you're actually going to have... A fight as you do in every technology that matures for premium brands right as it moves from being amateur to being professionalized but sort of like low like professionalized versions of the amateur thing Mm -hmm. and then eventually you have people figure out the technology and become like premium and the idea is that you know Vox Media will be the something like the Condé Nast of digital publishing we have a portfolio approach where we have The Verge and we have Eater and we have Espionation and we have Polygon, and Curved and Eater, and Recode, and Racked. And, you know, all these sort of brands that, in their space, are meant to be premium leader brands. Mm -hmm. And so they can get great advertising in that space, and they get, like, a really um, valuable audience in that space, and they build, like, a strong brand, and maybe some of them might have TV shows, some might have conferences, some might have, you know, podcasts, some might, you know, they're they're all different ways it can go. But I think that's the, the theory, and that You know, there is a set of skills that will be rewarded online. And, you know, Vox Media has been one of the places. I think BuzzFeed is another. Vice is another, you know, who have been learning and figuring out and showing that, you know, we have those skills. And so, like, that there actually is space to, to win off of that. Do you think that there's a better chance that that will play
2: out and some number of digital media companies will end up winning And Vox won't be one of them or that that won't play out and there won't be big media brands like eight years from now.
1: Are you asking me to choose between is it likelier that this happens but Vox loses or it's just the reason Vox loses is it doesn't happen? That's right. Oh, definitely the first one. More likely that it happens. This definitely will happen. It's definitely already happened. You think so? Yeah. Vice has a $2 billion valuation. Yeah, that's true. Like, And they make real money, is my understanding. We make real money. Like, we're profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, BuzzFeed makes real money. I know there's been talk about whether they hit their estimates, but there's been no talk that they didn't make a shit ton of money. No, they're making money. Yeah. So um, so this is already happening. Um, I think it's unlikely Vox Media won't be, you know, in that hopefully winner's circle. But... Definitely, the, I I see almost no chance that there's not going to be a set of digitally native media organizations mm-hmm. that become huge businesses. I mean, I, I don't, I would put the odds of that at zero.
2: Zero, yeah, I would put them above zero. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna adjust my scenario. I think because I don't feel pessimistic about it. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, the thing that I feel about it is that I genuinely can't paint the picture for you of what 2022 is going to look like from a media landscape. And I'm, I'm inherently dubious of anyone who says they can because it's changed so rapidly in the last eight years. So is the landscape shifting so fast that even the places that think of themselves as new and digital and agile can't be new enough, digital enough,
1: or agile enough? I think people overestimate the rate of change, structural change, in the media business. And I don't mean here change in how the business is conducted. There's no doubt that we're selling more ads online than we were attending. Like, that's all true. I mean the literal change in who the players are and how they are doing compared to some Baseline. I think it is interesting because sometimes I'll be talking to folks who want to come work here. And they'll say, well, how do I know, you know, Vox will be around in five years? And the, the thing I always say to them is, name me someone who was around 10 years ago who isn't around today. Now, it's not that you can't name anybody. I don't want to suggest nobody has fallen out. And there's definitely been like an absolute reaping in like the mid-city newspaper section, right? Mm-hmm. Like in a way that's really, really, really terrible. But at the, you know, national player level which is usually what we're talking about right and and i think is what we're talking about in this case broadly i'm actually struck by how much people stick around i mean gawker is obviously going through some very tough times but has been around from the beginning of this and remains like a big business right i I, you know we'll see if they do but um what it takes to actually imperil them and their business appears to be like billionaires endless vendetta lawsuits mixed with like them making some like really opening themselves up to huge legal reprisal right like it's not that what happened is business changed if there are no lawsuits and peter thiel never decided to like uh, push his vendetta Mm -hmm. um that we'd be having no conversation about cocker today that we would just look at them be like yeah they're doing their thing like they're making $40, 50 million like whatever it is they make? Yeah, not a hundred. Yeah, not a hundred. But my point is just that there's a lot of stability, actually. Mm-hmm. Like my examples are like Newsweek, Well, that's not a good example. But Newsweek actually is the example I would use too. Of like that is really something that fell apart, but it also like seemed to have like a lot of bad luck, right? Like it got yes. sold to Harmon and he yeah. died really, really shortly thereafter. But I, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna make the case, I think Newsweek is by far the best example. Yes. It's amazing. Like it's actually not gone, but it you know it it really isn't what it was. Yes. Um, but a lot of the players are are still around uh, and still doing really well. Actually, I actually think that we went through a period in the media where I don't think the legacy, non legacy, or new old stuff actually makes that much sense anymore. I. Take the new york times like or the washington post i think they are doing stuff as innovative as what's happening at any of the new media players in some cases more innovative and i think that for a while you were seeing a real struggle in terms of like legacy organizations adapting and i'm not saying there's no friction and i'm not saying there's no cost structures that aren't being supported i mean I'm not, i don't want to say like all the the pain is over but I think that compared to where we were five or six or seven years ago, it's was like maybe these people, like maybe these institutions just won't figure out the internet. I don't think folks look imperiled in that way. I
2: agree with that. I also think that people are um, leveraged in a way that
1: they haven't been before. I'll hit another part of this that I think is interesting, though, that makes me, it's one reason I'm a little bit more optimistic about the business, although I think you could probably take the same point and argue it the other way. Something I think is interesting about the digital media conglomerate hopefuls kind of group (laughs) the Vox Media Group is that they are much more diverse in their at least aspirational revenue streams than their predecessors were I think that's right like the New York Times like published a paper Mm -hmm. like that was a fucking great business too but it published a paper like that was primarily what it did um, Washington Post is a little bit more complicated because of the way Graham Holdings was structured. Kaplan and stuff, yeah. Yeah, but it, Washington Post, if you just think about it on its own terms, it published a paper. And I don't... I, I've always thought it's really interesting that the new media company, or at least one we think of as a new media company, Vice was like a small magazine for hipsters for a while first, that we think of... For like at, 20 years. Yeah, so... Yeah. But it has the highest valuation is fundamentally a television company at this point. Mm-hmm. And BuzzFeed is you know, really moved into video to motion pictures. Vox is really moving into video. Um, you know, one interesting thing about the way a publication evolves online is that because the cost of creating different kinds of content is so much lower, right? You don't have to invest in television production in order to make videos. They end up having a lot of different competencies, or at least the ones that are, you know, getting high valuations and getting a lot of investment have a lot of different competencies. And in theory, have a lot of different revenue streams it 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 seems new to me and it seems new to me in ways that suggest a little bit less long-term fragility i think that's right it's also ambitious it is very ambitious and it may not work let me argue the other side of it for a minute (laughs) i think that if any of these big players collapse when their obits are written it will be because it did too much I don't, and I'm not saying I think any of them in particular are doing too much, mm-hmm. but I do think when I look around and I think, what is the danger here? Like, what is the danger even for a Vox.com? I think it is losing too much focus because you're trying to do too many things. And I think one lesson everybody learned is be first to everything. Like, don't let somebody else, you know, beat you to the new platform. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's on everything, and that's really hard. It's hard for two reasons it's hard to
2: do everything just from like a 24 hours in a day. So only so many people in the office yeah. standpoint, but there's also this thing where it's like, if you bet on like every number on the roulette table, you can never really hit it that big. Like you there's only so much
1: bandwidth and it's going to be hard to get really, really good at any one thing. If you're doing yeah. everything. And I do think it's one reason that if you're doing a bunch of things, you have like, there really has to be a thread on an editorial level. So, so like, what's your? If to speak for Vox.com, right? Um, like we do, explain our journalism. That's our mission. That's our culture. That's the stuff we're good at. There's a lot of stuff we're not good at, but mm-hmm. we are, I, I believe, good at that. And so, if we're going to do something like go into television, if we're going to do something like go into um, make a make a big investment, some kind of new platform, we have to have some editorial theory about why our competency around explainer journalism will translate here, right? Is there a space in the market for it? Is there a need in the market for it? And is there some reason to believe that the capabilities of this technology will really work for it?
2: Mm -hmm. We started off and you were talking about how all of these sort of moves that you've made, the way that your career has evolved has been driven by some urge to do something that you can't currently do is explainer journalism a big enough bucket that you are not going to run into like the walls of it anytime oh, soon? Oh God.
1: Yeah. If, <laughs> if anything, it'll be the opposite. I'll give up cause it's too hard. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, um, I, I'm not just being facetious doing the thing we're trying to do well is really hard. It is the hardest thing I have ever done by orders and orders and orders of magnitude. Why? Um, Because I think people really underestimate how hard it is to change workflow and approach. Like take card stacks, which is something that is, you know, a product we launched with. It's still one of the things we do. It's not for all kinds of reasons. I don't think it'll be like our main hallmark on the world, but we still do them. Um, But when we were like really trying to make that our main product. Like, trying to recreate the workflow, even in a world where we had, like, brought everybody in to do that. We more or less got there, but it was grueling mm. to try to both be reporting the news and keeping these, like, body of knowledge products updated. Like, it was, it was, and for the ones where we're, you know, still focusing on them, is grueling. It's really difficult. And, you know, there's a lot of herd mentality in journalism. I don't mean that in a bad way. There is in, in everything. There are ways people are used to doing things. And, you know, doing just good work, even at the most normal level, is really hard. And then trying to do good or great work in ways that are more idiosyncratic is really, really hard. And, like, one, it means there are things you're not going to do well, right? Like, Vox is not a leader in breaking news. We are just not optimized for that. And, like, that's a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, when we are at our best is I think we have developed a lot of styles and contexts and formats and approaches and internal processes and all kinds of shit to surface context in ways that are, are not usual in journalism. Um, that's what I think actually connects a ton of the different things we do. Mm-hmm. Like I often think about like, what is our product? And I think that, um, it is not the nugget of broken news. Like what we're trying to make our product is the context, and I don't just mean random bits of information, I mean like the model, the body of knowledge, the thing that as the expert journalist allows us to understand the new information. And surfacing that like every time and figuring out how to surface that and creating ways to surface that is really hard it's a thing i think we're best at and even though i think we're better at that than anybody else in the game i think we only get it right up fraction of the time
2: Mm -hmm. and it's impossible to imagine yourself getting bored until you're doing it every time yeah boredom will not be the problem i have one more question i want to ask you yeah we did that whole thing. I did not ask you about any feature writing that you ever did on the long form podcast. I feel sheepish about that. <laughs> like
1: you wrote New Yorker pieces. We didn't even talk did. about it. Do you miss the New Yorker pieces? I do miss getting to do like the work of long form more frequently. Like the main thing I miss is not long form or short form or any kind of medium. I get to do actually a fair amount of writing. It is the learning that comes from it. Like the reason doing those New Yorker pieces was fun is I learned a shit ton. I always thought of the real role that doing long form played in my work as not about the feature itself but about the hundred blog posts that would be informed by that feature. Right. That was where the real value was. Um, and I, I wish in this podcast maybe we'll do another one sometime. We had talked a bit more about this part because I think it's something I believe really strongly about journalism that repetition is really important and that what you're trying to do is develop a certain set of models about the world and ideas about the world. And then you're using different news events to, to like highlight them from different angles. And you know, I covered a lot of bills and underneath the way I covered that legislation was a model of how Congress works, of how politics happens in this country, what polarization is doing. And I think I was ultimately able to really inform a lot of people, not through individual posts on the legislation, mm but through the consistent impact of seeing that day's bit of news evaluated from these angles. And I'd use feature work to work out the models. And that always, I think, refreshed my work a lot. And what I worry about is, what am I writing in four years? Mm -hmm. When I'm like, really, like, have not been doing this for a while. So that's what I miss. I don't miss so much, you know, the act of publishing in The New Yorker, though obviously that's super cool, but I miss reporting mm-hmm. um, and like thinking through things at that level. At
2: least you got podcasting.
1: I do. At least we'll always have podcasting.
2: <laughs> Ezra, thanks for taking the time, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Janelle Piper. our intern Courtney Harrell. Thanks to our sponsors. MailChimp, Squarespace, and Casper. And thanks very much to Ezra Klein for letting me come hang out in his office for a while. If you enjoyed that conversation, then I guarantee you will like Ezra's podcast. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. We'll see you next week. Rate us on iTunes. (laughs) Aaron would like you to rate us on iTunes, please.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone